You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Um, I'm excited to be back. Um, last week, uh, I was grateful for Chris um, preaching uh, and really uh, digging in for the first time to these Ten Commandments. We've been talking about them uh, for the previous two weeks. Now we are beginning to dig into them and uh, really am thankful uh, for, uh, for him and for the opportunity to be back this week. Uh, I had the privilege last week of serving uh, in our kids' ministry uh, with our elementary students. And uh, here at TCC, we uh, as a church plant, we we pretty much say to all of our members, uh, once you join, you get enlisted in the work of serving our kids. And so you don't have much of an option. So I recognize sometimes when you don't have much of an option to do something, uh, it can sometimes uh, <clears throat> uh, not be as fun. But I, I want to say uh, definitively as your pastor and having experienced it last week, that pound for pound, some of the best evangelistic ministry and discipleship ministry taking place in the life of our church happens in that birthday room and in the old arcade uh, and in whatever this office thing is over here that now is our nursery. Um, The opportunity we have uh, to uh, shape uh, a future generation to know and love Jesus uh, really is uh, such a joy. And so uh, thank you to to so many of you who serve uh, so consistently and sacrificially. Um, And even as we head into the summer, recognize there's moving pieces all the time. And sometimes you're stepping into different places and, and those sorts of things. We really believe ministry is about sustainable sacrifice. We really care uh, about uh, serving well. We don't want to burn you out, and yet all serving is sacrificial. And so uh, we hope that you know you're appreciated and you're loved, as well as the work that you're doing is making an eternal difference in the lives of our children. And so um, that's a total side note. Uh, But in many ways connects uh, with our sermon today as we think about how to pass on a faith and who it is that we tell the coming generation about. Who is this God that we worship? But before we jump into our text, um, I was thinking about this idea. We're going to talk about idols and images today is what the second commandment is about. And I was thinking about my elementary art class. And at some point in art, you do a self-sculpture. Um, and and I think that uh, elementary schools do this to like destroy uh, children's self-perception of themselves. Because... Uh, as you put together uh, this sculpture, um, I, I distinctively remember the golden sculpture that I had in my household. I, I wish I uh, could find it today. Um, and, uh, and so like the, the ears are way bigger than they should be. You know, uh, the teeth are like and the mouth is like uh, kind of crooked. Um, I remember using uh, some kind of, it was basically like, you know, the thing you put the Play-Doh in and you smush it out and it comes out like spaghetti. Like I, my hair, like I had like the bowl cut with the part uh, thing, like Jonathan Taylor Thomas thing going on, uh, if, uh, if you're old enough to remember that. Um, and, uh, or, or uh, Nick Carter, uh, if you remember him, he was my, uh, he, he, was, he was the guy I was uh, trying to emulate there for a season. Um, and, um, and this is middle school days, so don't judge me. Um, uh, in due time, I grew up. But uh, you put it all together, and it's clay, and then you throw it in the kiln, and out comes you, um, except with the little feature here and there that's off. And, uh, and it's hard to create a sculpture that accurately represents yourself. Even the best sculpture sculptors 
sometimes don't get right uh, who they're trying to depict. And so I, I have some pictures here, uh, if you can see these. Um, this is actually in England, um, outside near the Windsor Ca- Castle area, uh, a portrait of a, a farmer, a sculpture of a farmer of Queen Elizabeth and, and her husband. Um, you could argue that these aren't the best depictions of the Queen uh, and King. Uh, and in fact, there's a story of, uh, especially before uh, photographs and those kind of things when paintings were made uh, of, uh, of royal figures, there was kind of this, um, this unspoken and sometimes spoken rule of making sure to present uh, the king and the queen, whatever they looked like, to present them in their best light, maybe even in an exaggeratedly good light. And, uh, and so, um, so this one, I don't think they got the memo on that. And uh, I'm not sure if the king uh, or if the queen uh, has, uh, has kind of spoken to them about their efforts, but uh, it's hard to, to image royalty accurately. But here's another one that was in recent months or in recent years. Uh, uh, Ronaldo's statue that was put outside, I think this is outside of an airport in Portugal, um, and uh, to honor him and uh, his, uh, his accomplishments as, a, as an athlete. Um, and and it's, it's kind of lacking. A lot of, uh, a lot of people, including Ronaldo, didn't, didn't quite feel satisfied uh, with the work uh, that, uh, that they produced. And so um, I can't remember, they, they ended up issuing another one. I don't remember if this is the second one. Uh, or the first one, but um, it kind of, I don't know, it looks almost cartoonish-like, like a, a, a cartoon-like figure, but um, I kind of think the smile they got right, maybe the eyes are a little too close, you know, uh, like this is, this, I would have been happy if I would have gotten this close with my self-sculpture in middle school, um, but um, when you're a star, um, you, you may not be happy with this, but and then this is the other one, uh, Lucille Ball, this is outside of Park, um, uh, I forget now where the park is at. Um, I don't know. I, I don't think they got it. I don't think they, they, uh, they got close. I, I've actually heard that in, in like the last five years, the statue has been replaced uh, because they didn't quite get, uh, get it right. Um, and so uh, it's hard in a sculpture to get an accurate depiction of a person. Um, and as we come to Exodus 20 and God gives the second commandment, which speaks to idols, there's something in it that has to do with the failure of an idol to accurately depict who God is. Now, these things are about the, the accurate depiction of the, the actual person and what they look like, their characteristics. And when it comes to God, we can't make visible what is invisible. We can't encapsulate in an image what is true of the full disclosure and revelation of who God is. Um, And so as we continue into the second commandments, uh, we saw last week in the first commandment that we are to have no gods besides the, the Lord your God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt, God says at the beginning of Exodus 20. There's no gods before our face. It's not just that God has to be first amongst the other gods that we have, like we can have other gods as long as uh, the Lord your God is at the top of the heap, uh, but it's that there should be no other God besides him. He alone is the one true God. So the first commandment addresses who we worship. You shall have no gods beside me. The second command meant, as we see today, is going to address how we worship, that you shall not make, you shall make no idols for yourself. One uh, author in explaining this says, the first command uh, commands us to worship only the one true God. The second command commands us to worship him as he would be worshiped. And so really there's two things that are being prohibited 
uh, in this command. And as we talk about these commands, we're going to look at um, what it's prohibiting or what it's commending, uh, and then try to understand why that's the case, and then seek to apply uh, what that means and how we are to keep this command today. So the two things that's being prohibited here uh, is that we are not to make idols representing God in any form. And secondly, that we are not to worship idols of any kind. So he says, do not make an idol for yourself. We're going to look at this in a little bit, but the making of an idol is inherently self-focused, self-centered. It's an idol for yourself, but it becomes clear that there is to be no idol that's made in any shape. The summary is whether it's the shape of something in the heavens above, the earth below, or the waters under the earth. And, and it's clear that this is in the context of worship, that we're not to make an idol that we would bow down to or that we would uh, serve in any capacity. And, and God's going to go on to say, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the father's iniquity to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. We'll, we'll come back to that. But it's clear that <clears throat> what this command is seeking to do is to, to show us how we are to worship, that the way we worship the one true God isn't by means of idols, nor are we to set up any idol and worship it as if it were the one true God. <clears throat> J.I. Packer in his little book on the Ten Commandments says, This command forbids not worshiping many gods, the first commandment covers that, but imagining the true God as like yourself or something lower. God's real attack is on mental images of which metal images are more truly the consequence than the cause. So what he's saying is that the, the idol that you fashion, the wood you put together and then lay over it with gold, is, is actually a, more of an issue of what's in your mind rather than what comes out of the kiln. Uh, the, the issue is what you're imagining God to be like. And the tendency of our heart, I can't remember who said this, but it wasn't true to me. The tendency of our heart is to scale God down to size so that we can wrap our arms around him and make sense of him and, uh, and, and worship a God according to our own liking. It's the heart of idolatry. And it shows us why idolatry why idolatry isn't just a matter of the, the things that we put on our shelf, but it's of the things that we hold in our hearts. That it's, it's not, as, as Packer says, not just the metal images that we need to be concerned about, but it's the mental images, which ultimately is what gives um, fruition, comes to fruition in the images we create. And so uh, when we think about what this command is prohibiting, the worship of God by means of idols or the worship of any idol of any kind of making anything that represents God and worshiping it, we have to ask the question of why would God prohibit these images? Why, why is it that God would say don't worship idols in this way? And Chris did a great job last week of helping us to, to remember, uh, just as Exodus 21 through 2 shows us, is that Israel has come out of Egypt. And having come out of Egypt, they've come out of being surrounded by the worship of false gods in the form of idols. And God is here clarifying what it means to worship Him. And to, to worship Him isn't to worship um, an image that's uh, something in the creation, but He is the Creator. Uh, Genesis has unpacked the distinction between the creator and the created. And, and there could be nothing in the creation that we worship because it comes from the creator. And so at the most foundational level, the reason God prohibits uh, images is because images dishonor God. And the reason they dishonor God is because they fail to fully capture who he is. In some ways, in, in a very real way, an, an idol 
isn't just a misrepresentation of God, but it actually lies about who God is. It actually dishonors God. If you think about idols, think about what's true of an idol, particularly a, um, you know, a physical idol that, that one creates. Uh, an idol is finite. It's, it's made, it's fabricated, self-made. It's, uh, by, by its very nature, it implies control, that you can pick it up, that you can move it. If you move town, you can take your idols with you. You can put it on your shelf. You can put it on the ground. It's like a Dr. Seuss book. You can put it here. You can put it there. You can put it anywhere. You can take an idol in all of these places. You can control it. In fact, it's in need of you. It needs you to move it. You can see it, but it can't speak. It's present, but it has no power. Now think about who God is. God is by very definition infinite. He is unmade. He was and is and will always be, as Hebrews tells us. He cannot be manipulated because he is in control of all things. He needs no one or no thing. And yet the God who uh, is, uh, is infinite and, uh, and, and incomprehensible has yet made himself known. He can't be seen, and yet he's clearly spoken. He's ever-present and all-powerful. You can't capture God in an idol, in an image. By its very nature, it dishonors and it distorts who God is. And so God says there should be no worship of, of him by means of any idol, whether it's in the heavens above, the earth below, or the waters underneath the earth. Nothing in all of creation can capture who God is. Isaiah 40, verses 26 through 28, as, uh, as Isaiah is unpacking who God is, God says through Isaiah, He says, Who can you compare me to? Who is my equal? Look at the stars above, and I made them all. They all point to me. They all keep their place because of my power and because I put them there. And when we think about what it means to, to worship God, we must worship Him in a way that brings Him honor, that brings Him glory, that's in accordance with how He has revealed Himself to be, not how we think He is or how we wish He was. So images dishonor God, but they also mislead people. And they mislead people because they take our eyes off who God revealed Himself to be, and they put us in the position of saying, well, this is how I think God is. This is who I think God is like. And, and no doubt it's helpful perhaps to, to have some, uh, some connection in our minds. Oh, I, I, see, I see the way this person has served me. Or I see the, uh, we, we see different ways in which God uh, has revealed himself. Like a father who cares for his children. Or like a, a nursing mother who cares for her infant. Or, uh, or a, a picture of, uh, of a husband who's faithful in his love for his wayward wife. In the case of Hosea, all these things we could say, oh, that makes me think of how God is like. But those things are grounded in his word. We, we, we have to be careful not to go, well, I think God is like this, uh, to, to kind of cast some image outside of his word that is according to our own thinking, our own mindset. And so images mislead people because they take our eyes off who God revealed himself to be, and they allow us to, to fix our eyes on who we think he is or who we think we ought to be. And this comes out really clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 4. So Deuteronomy is like the second giving of the law. Um, 
Uh, a generation has to go through the wilderness for 40 years because they don't trust God. The generation Moses led out of Egypt, they don't trust God to take him into the promised land. And, uh, and Moses has to lead uh, the, that generation through the wilderness. And Moses in his pride and uh, his anger uh, strikes the rock when God tells him to speak to it. And then God prohibits him from going into the land. And so before the people go into the land, Moses is about to die, is about to pass the baton to Joshua. He gives a second giving of the law to a new generation, uh, to the younger generation that's come through the wilderness with their parents. And, and before he gives the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments again, he says this in Deuteronomy 4. He says, be on your guard and diligently watch yourself so that you don't forget the things your eyes have seen and so that you don't slip from your, and don't slip from your mind as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. He goes on to say in verse 12, The Lord spoke to you from the fire. You kept hearing the sound of the words, but you didn't see a form. There was only a voice. God is, God is going to great lengths to say there was no form that appeared to you at Mount Sinai, but it was a voice that you heard speaking. And he goes on to say in light of this, in verse 15, Diligently watch yourselves. Because you didn't see any form on that day that the Lord spoke to you out of the fire at Horeb. So don't act corruptly and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of any figure, a male or a female form, the form of an animal on earth, a winged creature, creature that crawls on the ground, the fish in the waters. When you look to the heavens and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all of those in the sky, I put them there for all people to enjoy, he says. And he goes on to say in verse 20, But the Lord your God selected you and brought you out of Egypt's iron furnace to be a people for his inheritance as you are today. See, as Moses goes uh, to to the coming generation that's about to go into the promised land, and he tells them, he says, If you learn anything from your parents' generation, they mistook the, the importance of the spoken word and over that elevated the visual display and depiction of who God was. They wanted a God they could see, that they could understand. And they, they forgot that God spoke to them in the mountain, at the mountain through the cloud, and they're not to worship God by any means of an idol. If we are going to worship God truly, it's essential that we pass on our faith to the next generation and the coming generations that's true to who God's revealed himself to be. And friends, this is, as I mentioned earlier, this is why uh, we think about what we do in kids' ministry is so vital. We're depicting who God has revealed himself to be. Yes, we sing and yes, we have fun, but the goal and the, the baseline of all that we do from a kid being in our, our infant's class to, to adults uh, all the way into uh, our gathering here on Sunday is to truly depict who God has revealed himself to be in his word. This isn't us coming together to say, I think God's like this. I wish God was like this. If God were like this, then he would be more acceptable and, uh, and palatable in our culture. So we should make God this way. No, we come and we say, here is who God has revealed himself to be. God has spoken and he's spoken in his word and we must be faithful to who he is. True worship isn't centered on an image, but a voice. And that voice is God's voice. And we hear God's voice today whenever we open up his word. That's the baseline. That we hear the voice of God when we open the word of God. That we see God through our ears. 
We, we, we have a, an ability to understand who he is as we hear his word. Faith, Romans 10 tells us, comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's vital that we think rightly about God. And if we think rightly about God, we have to understand who he's revealed himself to be. Now, if these two things are true, that, that idols or images uh, dishonor God and, and mislead people, why are we so drawn to it? You know, the story of the Bible from pretty much Exodus 32 on is the ongoing struggle with idols. And you think by the time we get to, 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 to Jesus and, and the New Testament, maybe we'd be over it. But you know, you know how the book of 1 John in, ends? 1 John ends, my children, keep yourself from idols. It's like the story of the whole Bible that we struggle with idols. And so why is it that we're attracted to it? And I think it's instructive uh, to look at Exodus 32. Uh, here we see, in some ways, the most egregious uh, act of idolatry. As Moses is on the mountain receiving the commands, I mean, he's only been gone for just a short period of time. And they're like, look, we don't know where this dude Moses is. We want a God. Make us a God, Aaron. And so it says in Exodus 32, 1 through 6, the people saw that Moses was delayed coming down from the mountains and they gathered around Aaron. They said, come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, a man who brought us from the land of Egypt, no small thing, mind you, uh, we don't know where he's at. And Aaron said, okay, uh, bring all your jewelry to me. Um, and so he took all the gold and he used an engraving tool uh, with purpose and made an image of a calf. Mind you, listen to what Aaron says does here in, in a moment when Moses questions him. He's like, look, I just, whoop, I put it in there and whoop, bam, here came a golden calf. Here it says he put it together. He fashioned it with intent. And then he said to Israel, these are your gods who brought you from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of it. He made an announcement. There'll be a festival tomorrow for the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose and offered burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to party. You see, I think we're drawn to idolatry because we, wanna, we want to worship a God we can see and understand. Baseline, we want a God that we can see and understand. That's what's happening here. You realize they... Though it morphed into a false god in many ways, what they were trying to do is they said, we don't know where Moses is. And the God, the invisible God, he told us that came to deliver us. We haven't seen him. We want a God we can see. We just came out of Egypt. They got gods. We want our own gods to go before us that we can get our arms around, that we can see, that we can understand. What they were doing is they were using their minds to conceive of God in terms of power. The image of a calf was a picture of power. That's what would have been true in Egypt. And that was what was true in their understanding of who, uh, what they were doing as they put together this power. It's no accident that Aaron created it in this form. He creates this calf as a picture both of power and of fertility. And often what was associated is not only power, but also Sexual immorality is what was attached uh, to this image. And so they had this image of, they thought God was powerful. They saw how he delivered them from Egypt, but mingled in with this image of, uh, of, of power was impurity. And so what takes place as they make sacrifices and they worship this golden calf, what scripture tells us is they go on to create, to act in great sexual immorality before the Lord, the God who's delivered them. They're acting just like the, the people who worship false gods in Egypt would have done. Conceiving of God as powerful, but being without purity. 
They had a false image of God. They wanted to wrap their arms around God, to think that they could understand God. And we're all prone to do this. I, I think God is like this. Or I, I don't want to think, I don't like to think of God as this way. Or God, you know, I think God is like this. And sometimes we take true things of him. Oh, I want to think of God as loving, not as like just and wrathful and vengeful. Like, I don't want to think of God like that. Or, or you, know, I, you know, I heard it said, maybe God is like this. Or we, we try to come up with some depiction of our understanding of God. All the while, if it's distorted or, uh, or disconnected from whom God has revealed himself to be, it becomes idolatry. But we're drawn to it because we want to understand who God is. We want to wrap our arms around it that we can see. This works itself out in a lot of ways. Consider this image. We want a God that we, we often can see. Have you seen this picture before? This picture is known as the head of Christ. It's been called the best known American artwork of the 20th century. New York Times labeled the artist Salman, I forget his first name, as the best known artist of the 20th century, even though probably none of us have heard his name uh, for, for making a picture that has become so uh, well known. See, God told us to, to not make an image of him in any form. Now, there's, we'll talk about this in a moment. We come to think about art. There is a sense because of the incarnation of Jesus that the invisible God has become visible. So in Christian tradition, there has been often a little bit of a nuanced understanding of how we depict Jesus, like in nativity scenes and, and those sorts of things, because God did come and, uh, and make himself known. Though we have no recording in Scripture of what he looked like. Even the prophecies say he was of no uh, you know, great uh, renown for how he looked, and nothing of, of great repute. But we have no description of how tall he is, what he sounded like, or if he had long hair, short hair, of course, you can draw out all kinds of things from the time and the customs and all those kind of things. But we don't have any of this. But I can assure you that he didn't look like a, a 60s hippie um, from California, right? Like uh, that most definitively isn't the case or from the Nordic states or Nordic countries, uh, as some people associate this with this is the Nordic Jesus. Now, here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the, uh, the artist who did this did this to promote uh, white supremacy or to, uh, to, to say Jesus was indeed, um, you know, a white European guy. Um, but what, what happens is when we have an image that we put in our mind, I think most likely he makes an image to say this is in the world that I live in. Here's a depiction of who Jesus could have been. But what happens is this becomes the image that some have attached onto. And, and, and in many ways, some people see almost like a white European Christianity as the standard for theology and practice, not understanding the, uh, the fullness of who God is and how he's revealed himself amongst all people. Instead, what it does is it misleads people. Some people thinking, that, well, this, this must be Jesus. Jesus must be the blue-eyed blonde dude as well as dishonors God because it can't accurately depict who he actually is. And by its very nature, even if not intending to elevate some version of him, it misrepresents who we know, at least from Scripture, him to be. So here we have a false representation of who Jesus is that can fill our minds and distort our understanding of who God is and mislead us, not remembering that God is the creator of the human race and that with, uh, with his creation of humanity, he makes them with all ethnic diversity. He demonstrates that his image is actually in the people he created. Isn't that amazing? When we think about not having an image of God in Genesis 1, he told us, I gave you an image. Just look around. 
Humanity is made in the image of God. And when we look at Jesus and his plan to redeem people from every ethnic background in Christ, he doesn't diminish our ethnicity. It's not that we, we can't appreciate how, um, how different ethnicities uh, function and the, the values and the, the aspects of those, those cultures uh, bring out what they bring out. But it's that all of our, our ethnic diversity is brought under our identity as followers of Christ so that it can be properly celebrated and properly submitted to Christ. And Kevin DeYoung, in making this connection between how we think about God and how we think about people, he said, mistreating other people and worshiping idols have the same root. It's a violation of the divine image. In the one case, we're looking for God's image where it doesn't exist in an idol. In the other case, we're ignoring God's image where he said it does exist in other human beings. And as we look around in our world and we're trying to, to make sense of the ongoing pervasiveness of white supremacy in our culture, the ongoing pervasiveness of racism of all ethnic backgrounds, like we should be able to say both of those things. What we have to understand is all of it goes back not to, not to the 16th century or the 15th century. All of it goes back to Genesis 4. You remember Cain and Abel? What happened when sin entered the world? Hatred and violence. It takes expression in all kinds of ways. And it's taken expression in our country in a pernicious way in the elevating of, um, <clears throat> of, of white uh, uh, kind of imagery as, as standard and as superior to all others. But it's true and present in every form when, it, when, when a person looks at another person as hatred in their heart because of who they are, who God has made them to be, and acts towards them in violence. And our, our world is filled with it today just as it was filled with it from Genesis 4 on. And the answer isn't to contrive some new form. It truly is to come back to the truth of who God has revealed himself to be and how it critiques often our understanding of, of what we elevate and then leads us to a true expression of who God is. The most important question is not who do we think God is or what do we think God is like, but it's who has God revealed himself to be. And when we see who God has revealed himself to be, it will rightly challenge and critique all of us. And it's a word that we need to hear, that we need to think rightly about how we worship God and how sometimes even unintended images that are meant to help us think about God, to wrap our arms around him and understand him can be misleading and ultimately dishonoring to God. One commentator, he, I, I'm not going to read all of these in great depth, but he laid out a number of other reasons that we sometimes... Um, uh, are drawn to idolatry. He, he talked about how it guarantees God's presence. There's no question. You know, if you ever, I sometimes pray and I feel like my prayers aren't getting above the ceiling. I don't know if God hears. Well, if you put the idol on the shelf, it's right there for you to see. You know, you guarantee God's presence in that way. It's selfishly motivated uh, that we uh, we're drawn to keep our ritual and satisfy our desires, but it doesn't require uh, often much of us. It's easy. All we have to do is do a little sacrifice, but then we can live however we want. There's no moral obligation to the idols that we we put before us. It's convenient. I I didn't mention this earlier, but when you look at First uh, Kings twelve. 28 uh, through 33, it talks about how Jeroboam, uh, in wanting to kind of win over the people, um, he decides uh, to, uh, to build, he, re, he commits the same sin of Exodus 32 and 1 Kings, and he says, you know what, rather than having to travel uh, to Jerusalem to do worship, you know, that's a long way to go, 
what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up here in Dan and Beersheba um, two golden calves so you can go there and worship. It'll be way, way easier, right? Like, why go to Jerusalem? That's a long way to go. Just go to Dan or Beersheba, and there you can worship. He says <clears throat> that he uh, sought some advice. He took two golden calves, and he said to the people, going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. Israel, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt, who set up one, he set up one in Bethel, uh, excuse me, and then one in Dan, not Beersheba. And then this led to sin. The people walked in procession before one of the calves all the way to Dan. And he made shrines and high places and priests from the ranks of the people who weren't Levites. He, he, he contravened the way in which God had revealed how he wanted to be worshipped. It says that he made a festival in the eighth month. They offered sacrifices and they went to Bethel to offer sacrifices. And then uh, they stationed the priests there as well. And they offered sacrifices on the altar. All of this, he, he chose this month and there was a festival and all these sacrifices breaking the way in which God had revealed that he wanted to be worshipped all for the sake of convenience. Look, our idols can take a lot of different forms, but today, whatever form our idol takes, I bet you these two things are true. We just want something that we can wrap our minds around and we want something that's convenient. You think about about what God required of his people and their worship to go uh, to Jerusalem, uh, to to offer sacrifices, to to take the sacrifice to the high priest. The high priest was the only one who could go in and make sacrifice for you. How he made accommodations even for the poor to be able to bring just a a turtle dove if they couldn't afford something, but to, to bring your firstborn calf to sacrifice the animal that could feed your family for months on end. It was costly. It was sacrificial. It wasn't convenient. You think about today what it means to to worship Christ, to to love Him and to obey Him, to allow His Word to shape our lives, to to have to gather with God's people to worship. Sometimes we have this individualized view of God today because self has been elevated to an idol in our culture. And we say, it's like just me and Jesus. But Jesus is like, no, me and my people. Me and the church. And you say, well, I mean, the church... Why is the church such a big deal? You Think about this. God gave a whole book on how he wanted his people to worship him at the temple. You think he doesn't care when his people gather to worship? He's, he's calling us to, uh, to worship him as he's revealed himself to worship, but we're attracted to idols because they're convenient. And get this, they're normal. The Israelites in Exodus 32, as well as here, they wanted gods like the other people. Why do we got to be so weird? We've got a God we can't see who requires us to keep this, this commands that are in this book. We want to be normal. We want to be like the other people. It's indulgent. The sacrifices were accompanied by great feasting. One commentator said heavy drinking and drunkenness were considered proper in idol worship um, because debauching oneself was simply part of being generous to God. Isn't that great? Like, I get to be generous to God by living out and fulfilling my indulgent desires to the fullest. And that's worship. That's why you had cult prostitution. That, that they, they had literally prostitutes in temples because the idea was as you uh, engage in this physical act that God will then bring about things into being in the world. What, what couldn't be to like? I, I, maybe something happens that I want from God, but if not, at least I get pleasure and satisfaction in the process. It was indulgent and, and even erotic. Behind it lay this idea of, of immorality. And at the end of it all, I heard Alistair Begg say, um, we want a God small enough to understand, 
weak enough to be manipulated, and soft enough not to punish wrong. And what a word. We want a God who's small enough to be understood, weak enough to be manipulated, soft enough to be not to punish wrong. And this, the, the idols that Jeroboam created um, <clears throat> in 1 Kings, if you go to 2 Kings, um, we see that, that God's people were pricked to the conscience because of their worship of false gods. And, um, and 2 Kings chapter 10, 28 through 31, and we see the story of Jehu. If you read through the whole chapter uh, there in 2 Kings chapter 10, uh, you'll get quite the story. He basically tricks some Baal worshipers, and he actually kills the Baal worshipers, tears down the Baal statues, the false gods. But then he makes, he makes this one mistake in verse 28. It says, after, after having done this, it says that Jehu eliminated Baal worship from Israel. Way to go, Jehu. But he did not turn away from the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit, worshiping the gold calves that were in Bethel and Dan. He kept the convenient worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. We want gods that we can understand and see, and we want a God that, that, um, that's convenient, that doesn't require too much of us, that doesn't uh, press into our lives too much. God says, you shall have no God before me, and you shall make no idols for yourself, to, an idol to worship me by means of that idol or an idol to, to set up in place of me. And as I said, our idols may look differently today, but at the core, if you press in, whether it be, whether it be self, whether it be success, whether it be uh, power, whether it be uh, uh, convenience or uh, comfort or indulgence or pleasure, materialism, at, all, at the core of all of these things that we're elevating lie behind it. A desire for what's easy, for what's convenient, for what makes us like other people, what allows us to indulge in our desires, what's ultimately rooted in self, what makes God a little bit more tangible, what scales him down so that he doesn't inconvenience us too much. God says, not only am I the only true God, but I must be worshiped as I have revealed. And I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, as we think about before we dive into how God's revealed himself to, to close, <clears throat> just a quick word on, on art, which I think comes to, to the fore here. If we think about this, so is God saying no art? Like if you're into art and artistic expression, does God uh, condemn that in some way here in the second commandment? And I think um, <clears throat> uh, Francis Schaeffer in his book, Art and the Bible, uh, which is kind of a book before its, before its time in many ways, he was talking about art when many Christians had, um, had not pay, weren't paying attention to it. He says that art is in many ways an outworking of the cultural mandate. It's something that we do fully submitting to the Lordship of Christ, that it's an expression of God as a creator God. And if you look at the tabernacle, the tabernacle was filled with ornate art. Beautiful art depicting natural things and, uh, and the, the Ark of the Covenant depicting the, the cherubim that were uh, used in service to God. And uh, all of, the, all of the, the artwork in the tabernacle and the temple was filled with beauty. The gold that filled the temple, all of it was ornate and beautiful. It's not that the art was the problem. It's when we use art to replace God or when we use art as a means of helping us worship God and in so doing distort who God reveals himself to be. 
So art has to be submitted to Christ and submitted ultimately to God's word. Uh, and, and the caution is, just like the pictures of Jesus or, or even, uh, even depictions uh, uh, of um, movie pictures, like I was just thinking about this in relation to the chosen or, or the passion, um, that we have to be cautious of depicting God in art because of what, the, what the, the second command says. Don't image me in any way, he says. The invisible God can't be made visible except in Jesus. And that's, like I said, in the Christian tradition, there's that one discussion of since Jesus became visible, can we accurately, according to the submitting to God's word, in some way depict him that's helpful for people? And yet that's where I think we have to be cautious to not allow using art as a method in aiding our worship to present a picture that doesn't accurately flow from God's word. And so I think you can perhaps watch things like the passion or the chosen not breaking the second commandment. But if our minds are filled with that as the primary image that we think about when we worship God, and that's not submitted to God's word, then we err and break the second command, depicting God in a form that he hasn't revealed himself to be. So I think it's wise for us to exercise caution uh, and, and seeking to depict God, particularly Jesus, in an art form uh, and, and to, uh, to ground all that we're seeking to do in God's word and not use it as a means of worship, uh, but, but perhaps as a, uh, as a form of, uh, of, some kind of um, some kind of instruction or fleshing out what we see in the Bible. But as we think about art and particularly how we depict Jesus, what's foundational is that it's submitted to God's word and that we see everything through the lens of God's word. Because when we think about how God has revealed himself, he's done so in three ways. He's done so in the created world. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. They reveal who God is. This means that nothing in creation can be worshipped, including human beings. The creature-creator divide is, uh, uh, it permeates God's word. It's important for us to understand uh, that distinction so that we don't look up into the heavens and worship anything in them or look down around the earth and worship anything, but recognize that it comes from God. He's the creator of all things. And even in Psalm 19, it moves from God's natural revelation to a special revelation because in verse 7, it moves to the law of God. And it's what we understand in the created world cannot, be, cannot uh, contradict or be disconnected from the written word. And, and so not only do we see God revealing himself in the created world, but we see God revealing himself in the living word. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God. But... The Lord Jesus has revealed him. Uh, it says in John, John 1.18, it even kind of uses the imagery of the tabernacle that he came and he dwelt among us and he's revealed God to us. And, and we can understand what God is like by, by looking at Jesus. And when it says in John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He makes God known. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the, the radiance of the glory of God, reveals who God is in his fullness. And that we can truly, we can only worship God truly if we first come to him through faith in Christ. 
He's revealed himself in the living word and Jesus Christ and that we can only rightly understand him through coming to Jesus. But how do we know about Jesus? We don't have any sculptures of him. We don't have any artwork of him. Dallas Jenkins wasn't around to make a movie back then. There wasn't anything that we have that tells us what Jesus is like except this. And God has ultimately and finally revealed himself in the written word. Second Peter 1, one of my favorite passages in Scripture, verses 16 through 18, says that we have a, a better and more perfect word, a word that we can be confident in that tells us who God is. In 2 Peter 1, 16, it says, <clears throat> For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. In fact, we are eyewitnesses of it. We saw and, and we received honor and who, for Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father. And when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, there was Mount Sinai when we heard the voice of God and the disciples were gathered with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration when they heard the voice of God. And that voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We, are, we ourselves heard the voice when it came from heaven, while we were there with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to lamp as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Ultimately, we know Jesus through the written word, the more sure and perfect word that comes to us on the basis of eyewitness testimonies of who Jesus is and how he fulfills the Old Testament. I don't have time to read 1 Chronicles 34, but I encourage you to, to go read 1 Chronicles 34 that talks about Josiah's finding of the law. And when he finds the law, how he tears down the, the idols and the, uh, temp, the poles of Asherah and the, the Baal worship. And, and as the scriptures are read, the people weep and they're convicted of their sin because they found the word of God. And I think this is such a word for us today that we, we need to be grounded in God's word, that we cannot allow the visual to overtake the written word. The importance of us to stand strongly and faithfully upon whom God has revealed himself in the word. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, again, a different resource, but speaking about uh, the importance of God's word, he said, soft days for evangelical Christians are past. And he used that term speaking broadly of those who believe the gospel. Jesus died for our sins. The Bible is God's word that Jesus is coming back. He says that only a strong view of scripture is sufficient to withstand the pressure of an all pervasive culture built upon relativism and relativistic thinking. We must remember that it was a strong view of the absolutes which the infinite personal God gave to the early church in the Old Testament and the revelation of Christ through the incarnation and through the New Testament. These absolutes revealed in God's word are what enabled the early church to withstand the pressure of the Roman Empire. Without a strong commitment to God's absolutes, the early church could have never remained faithful in the face of constant Roman harassment and persecution. And our situation today, he was writing in the 70s, is remarkably similar as our own legal, moral, and social structure is becoming increasingly anti-Christian and secularist consensus. That the, the only thing that we have to stand on is the revealed word of God. And that if we don't stand firmly on it, we ourselves will dishonor God and mislead others. All in the sake of convenience, what's easy, what's normal, what promotes ourself. All of these things point us to God's word as foundational. 
And part of the application of how we keep the second command is to allow our thinking about God. A.W. Tozer said the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God. And if, we're, if that's true, if the most important thing is what comes into our mind when we think about God, then we must be people who are informed by his word. Right. And he's told us who he is. At the end of Exodus 20, 4 through 6, and we'll close with this as we take the Lord's Supper. We have this revelation that God is a jealous God. He won't share his glory with any other God, and he won't share his people with any other God. He's a just God. He doesn't say that he, he condemns future generations for the sins of their fathers. What he says is, is that the next generation continues in the sins of their father. They will receive the same judgment as their fathers. We should think long and hard about the influence of our, our actions and how it shapes a coming generation, how the actions of one generation and nation shape the coming nation, how the actions in our family shape the coming children in our family. Um, but the point of what God is saying here is not that he judges people who are innocent for the guilt of their, uh, of their fathers, but that if we continue in the sins of our father, we bear the same judgment. But while he is a just God, he is a gracious God. His covenant love will never run out. It'll never run out for those who love him and keep his commands as an expression of their love.